Hi, everybody. I'm Brittany Lewis with Forbes Breaking News. Joining me now is my colleague, Maggie McGrath, editor of Forbes Women. Maggie, thanks for coming on in. Thanks for having me. It's an exciting day. I want to extend a big congratulations. The world's 100 most powerful women's list just dropped. First, give us an overview of the list. There's so much I could say, but this is the Forbes calculation of the world's 100 most powerful women. This is not to say there are only 100 women, but these are by our accounting in terms of money, people led. So if you are the head of a company, it's how many employees do you have? If you're the head of a country, how many um, citizens are you leading? So we, we do look at hard metrics here. And I can launch into a bit of an overview of the top 10 if you're interested. I would love that, but before we do, let's backpedal just a moment. Sure. And what is the inspiration behind the list? I wouldn't call it inspiration so much as the necessity to track who are the women who are changing the world and who are decision makers, who wields the capital necessary to create change across the entrepreneurial landscape, across corporate America, and across businesses worldwide, and who are the decision makers? You know, we have people making major policy decisions in the US, in Europe, in Australia, et cetera. And I think at a time where you still see photos of the G7 and G20 where it's suit, 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 and maybe one person wearing a dress, I think it's important to highlight those who don't look like the traditionally powerful and yet are tremendously powerful themselves. So let's talk logistics here. How are women selected to be on this powerful list? What are the metrics that you use? So it's not like the 30 under 30 or 50 over 50 and that we solicit nominations. It's pretty evident when you look across governments and large corporations who is at the head, right? So we kind of take the landscape of power structures around the world. We look at the Forbes Global 2000 list, our list of companies there, who are the chief executives. We look at the largest GDPs, so not just a list of countries, but what are the biggest countries? Who are the women who are prime ministers, presidents, and in some cases finance ministers, right? So who's creating the economic policy. And then from there, we have a multi-pronged ranking because we understand you can't really compare a chief executive to the head of the ECB, Christine Lagarde. Like, how, do you, how do you compare, right? So we take the policy and politics category and we rank those women against each other. And then we have a finance category where if you're the head of a bank, we're looking at the AUM, we're looking at the revenue, we're looking at the employee counts, and we rank those against each other. If you are the head of a technology service provider, which is how we define the tech category because tech touches so many of the categories and so many of the women on the list but we define that as are you a Microsoft Google Amazon etc what is your position what is your decision-making power right so we have new to the list this year the CFO of meta Susan Lee she is newer to her position I think she was named to her role later last year she didn't make last year's list but she's making this year's list because she is one of the chief people on those earnings calls with Mark Zuckerberg when they have a meta quarterly earnings who's answering questions who's representing the interests of the company who's advocating for AI policy and Web3 and some of the innovations that are happening there, she has decision-making power because she knows the finances, right? So the metrics are almost a proxy for, are you making decisions that have real impact on people, places, and things? 
I love that, and I want to know all 100 stories, and I'm sure all our viewers do, so feel free to check out the full list. But in the interest of time, can you break down the top 10 for us? For sure. So number one for the second year in a row is the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Her policies affect 450 million people, perhaps soon to be, well, soon is a relative term, 500 million, because she is advocating for Western Balkan nations to be entered into the EU, and she's also advocating for Ukraine to be entered into the EU. Uh, her State of the Union in September touched on those countries that are not yet official EU members that she is hoping to include in the bloc. So she is incredibly instrumental for shaping policy for the European Union. Number two, Christine Lagarde, the head of the European Central Bank. I've mentioned monetary policy. We are in a high well, we've been in a high inflationary environment. I think economists would say that inflation is slowing, but consumers would say prices are still high. So I speak as a consumer. It still feels like a high inflationary environment. My wallet's not happy. Right? My wallet is still not happy. I think eggs are finally a little less expensive than they were. Right? But, you know, she is the one who is setting, helping set rates in the European Union. Number three is our Vice President Kamala Harris. Number four is the Prime Minister of Italy, Georgia Maloney. And number five is someone who I think will produce a lot of debate because I've just named a lot of heads of state and heads of policy. But number five on this year's list is Taylor Swift. Well, she's in her era. It's the Taylor Swift era. We're all living in it. It's the power era, which is our headline in the magazine. She has proven herself to literally be able to move state economies and city economies. She was mentioned in the Philly Fed in the Beige Book in June. They looked at hotel revenue in the city of Philadelphia and the weekend that she played in Philly was the highest revenue for hotels in Philadelphia since before the pandemic. And there are similar economic outputs in Denver. I think that was 140 million. Los Angeles and the 300 millions. She's bringing so much money, not just in terms of what the tour itself is producing, but there's like an economic um, spillover effect, if you will, that's affecting full cities and full populations of people. And separately, she's merging the NFL and pop music, combining them. I think viewership the weekend that she appeared at the Chiefs game, the first time she appeared, rivaled that of the Super Bowl. I think people are crediting her with bringing younger women into the NFL viewership fold. Now, I, as a longtime Philadelphia Eagles fan, would say that it shouldn't take an international pop star to <laughs> like a sport, but it does show the power of Taylor Swift, and obviously her tour captured the attention of the United States this year. She ended the tour in South America and she will go overseas starting next year. So I think the power era is about to continue. But the other thing I would note is, you know, I talked about Christine Lagarde and Ursula von der Leyen and Kamala Harris and Georgia Maloney. I would be on calls with economists and people who study global leadership and asking about policies and these women who have quote unquote hard power and inevitably, there would be conversations where I didn't even bring Taylor Swift up and these sources would say, you know, if we're thinking about power, like, maybe it's just because I have a daughter, but what about Taylor Swift? So the fact that she is so top of mind, even as we're talking about hard power, suggests to me that the power of the people that she wields, I mean, you just look at the movie. She bypassed the studios and released it with AMC on her own. Very little traditional marketing. I think it was just on their socials, right? And it's north of 200 million gross right now. 
And Forbes called her a billionaire this year. It's a big year for her. Um, should have led with that, given that was, yes. And she is now a billionaire and one of the few musicians to do it on the power of her catalog, right? We've seen Rihanna and other entertainers start a business. Taylor Swift herself is a business. And now that's one through five. Any standouts, six through ten, or throughout the list as a whole? Ooh, Throughout the list as a whole, I mean, we have Melinda Gates and Mackenzie Scott, Mackenzie Scott and Lorene Powell Jobs, these billionaire philanthropists who are using their significant personal wealth to further the causes that are near and dear to their hearts, whether it be local uh, YMCAs or, in Melinda Gates's case, the economic empowerment of girls around the world. We have lower down on the list, but I think she's someone to watch is Mia Motley. She's the Prime Minister of Barbados. She has been one of the most outspoken advocates for action on climate change because she sees the way climate change affects her nation and affects her people. And I, I saw some rumors, and again, this is just rumors, but there was a headline earlier this fall, which is, will she be the next UN Secretary General? I don't have an answer for that question. My sources don't have an answer for that question, but she's in the 90s on this year's list, but who knows? Maybe she will be higher up one of these days. She could climb up. Someone who stood out to me is actually number 100. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think this could potentially get some hate online, and, and we're prepared for it. So And some love. I think this could get a lot of love, too. I'm always, uh, yes, I should be glass half, half full. Um, but before I say who number 100 is, I want to explain the number 100 spot. Since I became the editor of Forbes Women, we have used the 100 spot to highlight someone who is not traditionally powerful, right? Taylor Swift has money and influence and social media followers that if you were to add up across all her platforms and if you were to compare it to a country would make her among the 10 most populous countries in the world. Like that's how many people follow her. So that's hard power, right? But we often look at soft power in the 100 spot. So in 2019, it was Greta Thunberg because she galvanized the power of young people, Gen Z, to march for climate change. We had Stacey Abrams in 2020 for all that she had done to advocate for free and fair elections and access to the right to vote. 2021, we had Frances Haugen, who was the whistleblower on Facebook and really seemed to be the sole cause of a, a real moment of reckoning for the tech industry. And last year, number 100 went to Masa Amini posthumously because her death galvanized the people of Iran and people around the world to march for women's rights. This year, we have a fictional character who is not just a fictional character, but I think a movement, Barbie. And I want to make it very clear that Barbie does not stand for Greta Gerwig, it does not stand for Mattel, it does not stand for the toy itself. We see Barbie as representative of all the women on the list ahead of her, right, because she's had every job and stands perhaps as inspiration to younger girls to be any of those jobs, to occupy any of those jobs. But we also don't want to ignore the economic effect of the Barbie movie and of the franchise this year. We're looking at a $1.4 billion gross worldwide, rounded up by a few decimal points. And the way women and girls came together to, and people of all genders, but I, I talked to a lot of women who talked about their daughters, taking their daughters to the movie, the conversations about gender equality and inequity after seeing that movie. I think the the story of Barbie this year 
showed the economic power of women, showed the political power of women. You saw America Ferreira's speech go viral about all the impossible realities women are held to. I, I think it both spoke to a feeling and a moment and created a moment, if you will. And it also created a multi-generational moment because I saw that movie with my mom. I, I was talking to grandmas who were there, young kids as young as five were in the movie watching it because every woman can relate to a Barbie. Everyone's played with a Barbie. A Barbie has touched someone's life as a woman at some point, I think. I don't remember if I played with Barbies. Actually, I was more of an American girl, doll girl. I loved those books. I was a very bookish kid. But what I will say is, yes, I saw the movie with my mom. I also think the narrative of the movie is worth thinking about. And again, we did not list Barbie just purely because of the movie. I think she represents a larger so much moment. more. And as someone who, if you look at the date that Barbie was created, she would qualify for the 50 over 50 because she is over the age of 50 and is more resonant and relevant than ever before. Can we expect her to be 50 on the 50 over 50 this year? I don't. I, we're going to stick to real people on the 50 over 50. But the the movie, I had an economist point this out to me. You know, if you look at what's happened with women's political power, especially in the United States, something was taken away from us in 2022 when the Dobbs decision came down, when reproductive choice was rolled back in this country. And if you look in the movie, you have Barbie land. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, right? Barbies rule everything. And then the Kens take over in the major domo casa. I'm going to get the word wrong but you know everyone knows everyone knows yep. <laughs> the super macho takeover of Barbie land and then the Barbies have to take that power back and I spoke to one economist who kind of suggested that that narrative is a metaphor for what has to happen in the states and more globally women have gotten a taste of power in some cases and then that power is taken away but there is always the ability to rise up and take the power back so whether you're talking politically or whether you're talking even in CEO succession planning. How many female CEOs do we see after they step down? It's a man who gets put in their place. We recently saw with Bumble and Slack, respectively, that was a rare woman-to-woman-to-woman -woman -woman succession. So Whitney Wolf Hurd stepped down and uh, the CEO of Slack, Lydia Ann Jones, stepped into her role and then another woman stepped into the role of Slack. That is a rare passing of the baton among women. So we would like to see more of that. We would like to see more women in power, and we would like to see more women taking back power. So the Barbie movie, in some ways, it's just a movie, but in other ways, it's perhaps a narrative that I think a lot of women watching hope to see in real life. And it was a feeling that resonated with a lot of women, but aside from a fictional character being on the list, or a fictional moment, rather, what are the differences between this year's list and uh, lists in the years past? If you had asked me that question at the beginning of the year, I would have said there are far fewer politics and policy heads on this year's list because we saw Jacinda Ardern step down from power. Uh, we saw Sana Marin lose her seat earlier this year. These are two women who led governments who had who had been on the power list last year. But into their place, we, we have other heads of state, we have other heads of policy that we listed. Same thing on the CEO on the corporate front. Roz Brewer is no longer the CEO of Walgreens, so she came off the list. But we have the new CEO of JD.com on the list. We have um, Banco de Brazil has its first female CEO, so she is on the list. So 
I think earlier in the year when we saw a lot of these resignations happening, I thought, uh-oh, this is really bad news for the power list. But that was just Q1 and Q2. Q3 and Q4 have seen these appointments and have seen women step into power. So it's less of a sector-by-sector -sector trend and more case-by-case -case that you have some women coming off, but then there have been other appointments where you know, they're stepping into power. Maggie, who are the women to watch maybe in 2024 who didn't make the list but are honorable mentions? So we, I, every year I do publish a list called uh, Power Rising, These Are the Women to Watch because sometimes, you know, I talked about women stepping into power. We get these announcements that so-and-so is going to take over, but they have a 2024 start date. So EY, one of the global accounting firms, is about to about. In July 2024, Janet Troncali, Troncal, I hope I pronounced that correctly, will become the global chair and CEO of the firm, the, I think the first woman to lead the firm. That is a huge, huge job. EY reported rounding up 50 billion in revenue this past year so they have a huge business effect so she's someone i would expect to see on the list that uh, could be even like a top 20 person considering that julie sweet is also in the top 25 um the accenture ceo yes i i think the the the, well, the metrics the <laughs> metrics are there and then the other thing i would call out is mexico's presidential election the two candidates from the two biggest political parties are both women. So Mexico is poised. I mean, there's a third party candidate, but he's pulling in a distant third. So Mexico is almost guaranteed to have a woman at its head after the June 2024 elections. And she is someone who is uh, most likely to make our list next year. Well, there is a lot to keep our eye on in 2024. Maggie McGrath, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much.